Welcome to The Essential Sam Harris. This is Making Sense of Social Media and the Information Landscape. The goal of this series is to organize, compile, and juxtapose conversations hosted by Sam Harris into specific areas of interest. This is an ongoing effort to construct a coherent overview of Sam's perspectives and arguments, the various explorations and approaches to the topic, the relevant agreements and disagreements, and the pushbacks and evolving thoughts which his guests have advanced. The purpose of these compilations is not to provide a complete picture of any issue, but to entice you to go deeper into these subjects. Along the way, we'll point you to the full episodes with each featured guest, and at the conclusion, we'll offer some reading, listening, and watching suggestions, which range from fun and light to densely academic. One note to keep in mind for this series, Sam has long argued for a unity of knowledge where the barriers between fields of study are viewed as largely unhelpful artifacts of unnecessarily partitioned thought. The pursuit of wisdom and reason in one area of study naturally bleeds into, and greatly affects, others. You'll hear plenty of crossover into other topics as these dives into the archives unfold. And your thinking about a particular topic may shift as you realize its contingent relationships with others. In this topic, you'll hear the natural overlap with theories of moral and political philosophy, belief and unbelief, free will, and artificial intelligence. So, get ready. Let's make sense of social media and the information landscape. One very important update before we jump into this compilation. Since the initial writing and recording of this episode, Sam quit Twitter entirely. He recorded a solo episode entitled, Why I Left Twitter, which explains his reasoning and thought process for that decision. We, of course, recommend listening to that, in addition to the included conversations here. The knowledge that Sam eventually walked away from social media platforms places an interesting lens over his conversations on the subject from the previous decade. Though, as you'll hear, this compilation extends the considered issues of social media well beyond personal engagement and into the many ways in which the surveillance economy generally has warped our politics, social relations, and moral psychologies. Why I Left Twitter is episode 304. And now, back to the episode. Social media is one of those topics that everyone seems to have strong opinions about. That fact in itself, the idea that our feelings on just about everything seem to have gotten stronger, inflamed by the advent of social media, is something we'll fold into the discussion during this compilation. Like just about all of us, Sam has gone through, and continues to go through, a strained relationship with social media. Apparently, even the most practiced meditators can be hijacked by algorithms that target our propensity for outrage, adulation, annoyance, and disgust. The beast of social media is strong. But of course, social media also has positive potential and its own success stories. There are unignorable societal benefits that must be evaluated and considered. This compilation contains plenty of critique and perspective regarding the darker sides of social media and the economic model which has provided its scaffolding. 
But the criticism should not completely crowd out or invalidate the defenders and believers in its positive possibilities. We're also going to be situating the social media question in a broader context of the business model which enables it, something that's been called surveillance capitalism by its critics and personalized advertising by its more supportive advocates. We'll also be zooming in on some of the specific technologies upon which all of this is built. In the introduction to an episode with Jaron Lanier, which is included in this compilation, Sam identified three main lines of inquiry for this topic. The first is economics and the question of incentives in the face of automation and artificial intelligence. The second is politics and the question of how we can cooperate and cohere on ideas in a space where truth is being hollowed out. And the third is psychology and how our attention and well-being are being assaulted by the power of the surveillance economy and social media. We'll be wandering through that same roadmap through these clips. There won't be a ton of deep philosophical lessons and thought experiments to walk you through in this episode. Much of what we'll be tackling is plain for most people to see and experience for themselves. We're going to hear Sam's conversations with defectors from the ranks of the architects of information ecosystems in Silicon Valley, like Tristan Harris and Jaron Lanier. We're going to hear some of Sam's conversation and pseudo-interrogation of Jack Dorsey himself, the co-founder of Twitter, who was also its CEO at the time of their conversation. And we're going to hear from authors like Jonathan Haidt and Cass Sunstein, who have studied and continue to investigate the impacts of social media on individuals and the health of democracy. We're also going to broaden our lens and listen in on a conversation with Zeynep Tufekci, an author who focuses on global movements and geopolitics, and consider how social media fuels, diverts, or otherwise confuses political efforts. And finally, we're going to tiptoe into the emerging deepfake technology, which threatens to pour even more fuel on the fire of the collapsing integrity of global information. So let's start with Sam talking to Tristan Harris. No relation, by the way. Tristan has been called the closest thing Silicon Valley has to a conscience. Tristan had just appeared in a documentary entitled The Social Dilemma when he spoke to Sam. So much of their conversation references the film, which is certainly recommended viewing for this topic. Tristan has been laser-focused on the problems of social media after spending years working as a designer for Google and seeing firsthand the potent, attention-harnessing techniques that lurk behind the apps on your phone. If you listen to our compilation about artificial intelligence, you'll be familiar with a concern about our strengths and competencies being squashed by technology. Here, you'll hear Tristan flip that concern around with a sharp observation. Tristan has appeared on Making Sense twice. This is from the more recent conversation from episode 218, Welcome to the Cult Factory. Let's take it from the top here. What's wrong with social media at this point? If you could boil it down to the the elevator pitch answer, what what is the problem that we are going to unspool? Well, it's funny because the film actually opens with that prompt, the blank stares of many technology insiders, including myself, because I think it's so hard to define exactly what this problem is. There's clearly a problem of incentives, but beneath that, there's a problem of what those incentives are doing and where the exact harms show up. 
And the way that we frame it in the film and in a big presentation we gave at the SF Jazz Center back in April 2019 to you know, a bunch of the top technologists and, and people in the industry was to say that while we've all been looking out for the moment when AI would overwhelm human strengths and when we would get the singularity, when would AI take our jobs, when would it be smarter than humans, we missed this much, much earlier point when technology didn't overwhelm human strengths, but it undermined human weaknesses. And you can actually frame the cacophony of grievances and scandals and problems that we've seen in the tech industry from distraction to addiction to polarization to bullying to harassment to the breakdown of truth, all in terms of progressively hacking more and more of human vulnerabilities and weaknesses. So if we take it from the top, you know, our brain's short-term memory system have seven plus or minus two things that we can hold. When technology starts to overwhelm our short-term and working memory, we feel that as a problem called distraction. Oh my gosh, I can't remember what I was doing. I came here to open an email. I came here to go to Facebook to look something up, but now I got sucked down into something else. That's a problem of overwhelming the human limit uh, and weakness of just our, our working memory. When it overwhelms our dopamine systems and our reward systems, that we feel that is a problem called addiction. When it taps into and exploits our reliance on stopping cues, that at some point I will stop talking and that's a cue for you to keep going. When technology doesn't stop talking and it just gives you the infinite bottomless bowl, we feel that as a problem called addiction or addictive use. When technology exploits our social approval and giving us more and more social approval, we feel that as a problem called teen depression because suddenly children are dosed with social approval every few minutes and are hungry for more likes and comparing themselves in terms of the currency of likes. And when technology hacks the limits of our heuristics for determining what is true. For example, that that Twitter profile who just commented on your tweet five seconds ago, that photo looked pretty real. They've got a bio that seems pretty real. They've got 10,000 followers. We only have a few cues that we can use to discern what is real. And bots and deepfakes, and I'm sure we'll get into GPT-3, actually overwhelm that human weakness. So we don't even know what's true. So I think the, the main thing that we really want people to get is through a series of misaligned incentives, which we'll further get into, Technology has overwhelmed and undermined human weaknesses. And many of the problems that we're seeing as separate are, are actually the same. And just one more thing on this analogy, it's kind of like, you know, collectively, this digital fallout of addiction, teen depression, suicides, polarization, uh, breakdown of truth. We, we think of this as a collective digital fallout or a kind of climate change of culture that much like the, you know, oil extractive economy that we have been living in an extractive race for attention, there's only so much. When it starts running out, we have to start fracking your attention by splitting your attention into multiple streams. I want you watching an iPad and a phone and the television at the same time because that lets me triple the size of the attention economy. But that extractive race for attention creates this global climate change of culture. And much like climate change, it happens slowly, it happens gradually, it happens chronically. It's not this sudden immediate threat. It's this slow erosion of the social fabric. And that collectively we called in that presentation human downgrading, but you can call it whatever you want. The point is that, you know, if, if you think back to the climate change movement, before there was climate change as a, as a cohesive understanding of emissions and linking to, to climate change, we had some people working on polar bears, some people working on the coral reefs, we had some people working on species loss in the Amazon. And it wasn't until we had an encompassing view of how all these problems get worse that, that we start to get change. And so we're really hoping that this film can act as a kind of catalyst for a global response to this really destructive thing that's happened to society. Mm. Okay, so let me play devil's advocate for a, a moment using some of the elements you've already put into play. 
because of you and I are going to impressively agree throughout this conversation on the nature of the problem, but I'm channeling a skeptic here, and it's, it's actually not that hard for me to empathize with a skeptic, because as you point out, it really it takes a fair amount of work to pry the scales from people's eyes on this point. And, and the, the nature of the problem, though it really is everywhere to be seen, it's surprisingly elusive, right? So if you, if you mm-hmm. reference something like, you know, a spike in teen depression and self-harm and suicide, you know, there's no one who's going to pretend not to care about that. And then there really is just the question of, you know, what's the causality here? And is it really a matter of exposure to social media that is driving it? And, and I think, I don't think people are especially skeptical of that. And that's a, that's a discrete problem that I think most people would easily understand and mm-hmm. be concerned about. But the more general problem for all of us is, is harder to keep in view. And it's, so when you talk about things, again, these are things you've already conceded in a way. So like, attention has been a finite resource always, and everyone has always been competing for it. So you know, if you're going to publish a book, you are part of this race for people's attention. If you, if you were going to release something on the radio or television, it was always a matter of trying to grab people's attention. And as you say, we're trying to do it right now with this podcast. So it's when considered through that lens, it's hard to see what is fundamentally new here, right? So yes, this is zero sum. And then the question is, is it good content or not? I think people want to say, right? It's just, this is just a matter of interfacing in some way with human desire and human curiosity. And you're either doing that successfully or not. And what's so bad about really succeeding, you know, just fundamentally succeeding in a way that, yeah, I mean, you can call it addiction, but really it's just what people find captivating. It's what people want to do. They want, they want to grant their attention to the next video that is absolutely enthralling. But how is that different from, you know, leafing through the pages of, you know, a hard copy of Vanity Fair in the year 1987? And feeling that you really want to read the next article rather than work or do whatever else you, were, you, you thought you were going to do with your afternoon. So there's that. And then there's this sense that the fact that advertising is, is involved and really, really the, the foundation of everything we're going to talk about, what's so bad about that? I mean, so really, it's a story of ads just getting better. You know, I, I don't have to see ads for Tampax anymore, right? I, 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 I'm, I go online and I, I see ads for things that I probably want or, or nearly want because I abandoned them in my Zappos shopping cart, right? So what, what's wrong with that? And I think most people are stuck in that place. Like they just, we have to do a lot of work to bring them into the place of the conversation where the emergency becomes salient and so yeah. let's start there. Gosh, there's so much good stuff to unpack here. So on the attention economy, obviously, we've always had it. We've had television competing for our attention, radio, and we've had evolutions of the attention economy before. Competition between books, competition between newspapers, competition between television to more engaging television to more channels of television. So in many ways, this isn't new. But I think what we really need to look at is what was mediating where that attention went to. Mediating is a big word. Smartphones, we check, out, we check our smartphones, you know, a hundred times or something like that per day. They are intimately woven into the fabric of our daily lives and ever more so because of if we pre-establish addiction or just this addictive checking that we have that any moment of anxiety, we turn to our phone to look at it. 
So it's intimately woven into where the attention starting place will come from. It's also taken over our fundamental infrastructure for our basic verbs. Like if I want to talk to you or talk to someone else, my phone has become the primary vehicle for just about for many, many verbs in my life, whether it's ordering food or speaking to someone or you know, figuring out what I, where to go on, on a map. We are increasingly reliant on the central node of our smartphone to be a router for where all of our attention goes. So that's the first part of this intimately woven nature and the fact that it's our social, it's part of the social infrastructure by which we rely on. We can't avoid it. And part of what makes technology today inhumane is that we're reliant on infrastructure that's not safe or contaminated for many reasons that we'll, we'll get into later. A second reason that's different is the degree of asymmetry between, let's say, that newspaper editor or journalist who is writing that enticing article to get you to turn to the next page versus the level of asymmetry of when you watch a YouTube video and you think, yeah, this time I'm just going to watch one video and then I got to go back to work and you wake up from a trance, you know, two hours later and you say, man, what happened to me? I should have had more self-control. What that misses is there's literally the Google, you know, Google's billions of dollars of supercomputing infrastructure on the other side of that slab of glass in your hand pointed at your brain doing predictive analytics on what would be the perfect next video to keep you here. And the same is true on Facebook. You think, okay, I've sort of been scrolling through this thing for a while, but I'm just going to swipe up one more time and then I'm done. Each time you swipe up with your finger, you know, you're activating a Twitter or a Facebook or a TikTok supercomputer that's doing predictive analytics, which has billions of data points on exactly the thing that'll keep you here. And I think it's important to expand this metaphor in a way that you've talked about on I think in your show before about just the power, increasing power and computational power of, of AI. When you think about a supercomputer pointed at your brain, trying to figure out what's the perfect next thing to show you, that's on one side of the screen. On the other side of the screen is my prefrontal cortex, which has evolved millions of years ago and doing the best job it can to do goal articulation, goal retention and memory and sort of staying on task, self-discipline, et cetera. So who's going to win in that battle? Well, a good metaphor for this is let's say you or I were to play Gary Kasparov at chess. Like, why would you or I lose? It's because, you know, there I am on the chessboard and I'm thinking, okay, if I do this, he'll do this. But if I do this, he'll do this. And I'm playing out a few moves ahead on the chessboard. But when Gary looks at that same chessboard, he's playing out a million more moves ahead than I can, right? And that's why Gary's going to win and beat you and I every single time. But when Gary, the human, is playing chess against the best supercomputer in the world, no matter how many million moves ahead that Gary can see, the supercomputer can see billions of moves ahead. And when he beats Gary, who is the best human chess player of all time, he's beaten like the human brain at chess because that was kind of the best one that we had. And so when you look at the degree of asymmetry that we now have, when you're sitting there innocuously saying, okay, I'm just going to watch one video and then I'm out, we have to recognize that we have an exponential degree of asymmetry and they know us and our weaknesses better than we know ourselves. That part of the conversation sets the stage for us well, but we recommend a full listen to that episode as Sam continued to skillfully play devil's advocate throughout and allowed Tristan to flesh out the nuanced and complex considerations. But Tristan remains steadfast in his effort to sound the alarm about the power of algorithms to target our weaknesses, and so that's where we're going to stay in this trek through social media. You heard Sam, while channeling a skeptical view, point to the economic model that serves as the oxygen that keeps the social media monsters breathing. Advertising. Here is an open question for the health of democracy and individual psychology. 
Is there a point when advertising can become too effective? And has social media pushed us over that threshold? Advertising is certainly nothing new, of course, and the profit motive has always encouraged persuasion and attention-grabbing wherever possible. But turn back the clock a few hundred years and imagine a handcrafted, colorfully painted wooden sign hanging above a rival blacksmith shop in a town square. And compare its influence to a perfectly timed, personalized, targeted advertisement that was crafted and custom-molded to your taste in music, attraction, color preference, current mood, political persuasion, and just about everything else. The latter does seem to suggest a deep shift in the power to persuade effectively. If there is something like an objective measure of the effectiveness of persuasion that immorally encroaches on a notion of personal autonomy, it's fair to wonder if we've blown right past it. There's an old adage in marketing that goes like this. I know I'm wasting half of my marketing budget. I just don't know which half. That built-in uncertainty might be eroding in the face of data-collecting machines which promise more and more of a sure thing to advertisers. To explore this area a bit more, we're going to hear from Jaron Lanier. Lanier is a computer scientist and Silicon Valley pioneer who launched virtual reality companies in the mid-80s. He was part of an early wave of bright-eyed, idealistic technologists. And he's among those who have since begun to question what they may have been missing. When he spoke with Sam, he had just written a book which was not shy about its suggestion. It was called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. For this compilation, we're going to be tapping this interview for Lanier's thoughts on the economic models that have run amok on the internet and listen in on some of his nascent suggestions on how different models might improve the situation. We'll start with Sam and Lanier revisiting the early days of Silicon Valley and the seemingly uncontroversial notion that information should be free. This is from episode 136, Digital Humanism. Many of the worst decisions we've made here, and this is something you point out in your books, in creating this technology are not on their face bad decisions. I mean, they, they're certainly not sinister decisions. And so, and one of the first decisions we've made is around this notion that, that information should be free. And that just seems like a, a, a very generous and, and idealistic way to start. It just seems quite noble. So perhaps we can start here with, with, with the digital economy. What, what could possibly be wrong with information being free? Right. Well, this idea that information should be free uh, was held in the in the most profound and intense way. It was something that was believed so intensely during a period starting in the 80s. And in some ways, it still holds for a lot of people. And to defy that was very, very difficult. It was painful for my friends who couldn't believe that I was defying it. It was painful for me. I did lose friends over it. And on its face, it sounds very generous and fair and proper and freeing, but there are, there are um, problems with it that are so deep as to, I think, uh, threaten the survival of our species. It's actually a very, very, very serious mistake. So the, the mistakes happen on a couple of levels here. I would say the first one uh, has to do 
with this idea that information is totally weightless and intrinsically something that's free and an infinite supply. And that's not true because information only exists to the degree that people can perceive it and process it and understand it. It ultimately only has a meaning when it grounds out as human experience. Uh, The slogan I used to have back in the 80s when we were first debating these things is that information is alienated experience, uh, meaning information is similar to stored energy that can be released. You put energy into a battery, then you can release it, or you lift up a weight, and then you let go of the weight, and it goes back down, and you've released the energy that was stored. And in the same way, um, information ultimately only has meaning as experience uh, at some point in the future. And the problem with experience, or maybe the benefit of experience, is that it's it's um, only a finite potential. You can't experience everything. And so therefore, if you make the mistake of assuming that information is free, you'll have more information than you can experience. And what you do is you make yourself vulnerable to uh, what we could call a denial of service attack in other contexts. So a denial of service attack means that malicious people um, send so many requests to a website that it's effectively knocked out off the web. You can't reach it anymore. And every website that you use reliably actually has to go through this elaborate structure of other resources created by companies like Akamai that defend it from uh, denial of service attacks, which are just infinitely easy to do. But in the same way, when you have uh, services like Twitter or Facebook, where anybody can post anything without any cost to themselves, and there's no postage on email, uh, and everything can just be totally filled up with spam and malicious bots and crap to the point where reality um, and everything good about the world gets squeezed out and you end up amplifying the worst impulses of people. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing as free information. There's no such thing as infinite attention. There has to be some way that um, seriousness comes into play if you want to have any sense of reality or quality or truth or decency. And uh, unfortunately, we, we, we haven't created a world in which that's so. But then there's a flip side to it, which is equally important, which is uh, we've created this world in which we're talking about technology often as something that's, if not opposed to humanity, opposed to most of humanity. So uh, there's a lot of talk, and a lot of this comes from really good technologists. So it's not from like malicious outsiders who are trying to screw us up. It's our own fault where we'll say, well, a lot of the jobs will go away because of our artificial intelligence and our robots. And that might either be some extreme case where a super intelligent AI takes over the world and disposes of humanity, or it might just be that only the most elite, smart, techie people are still needed and everybody else becomes this burden on the state and they have to go on some kind of basic income. And it's it's just a depressing, it's like, it's like everybody's going to become this useless burden. And so even if that means, oh, we'll all get basic income, we won't have to work for a living. There's also something fundamentally undignified, like you won't be needed. And any situation like that, it's just bound to be a political disaster or an economic disaster on many levels we can go into if it isn't obvious. But the thing to see is that this economic hole that we seem to be driving ourselves into is one and the same as the information wants to be free. Because the thing is, ultimately, all these AIs and robots and all this stuff, they run on information that at the end of the day has to come from people. and Each instance is a little different, but for a lot of them, um, there's input from a lot of people, and I can give you some examples. So if we say that information is free, then we're saying uh, in the information age, 
everybody's worthless because what they can contribute is information. <laughs> um, the example I like to use as just an entry point to this idea is uh, the people who translate between languages. So they've seen their careers um, be decimated, their tenth of what they were, in the same way that recording musicians and, um, oh, you know, uh, investigative journalists and many other classes of, of uh, people who have an information product, they, they've all been kind of reduced under this weird regime we've created. But the thing is, in order to run the uh, the so-called AI translators uh, that places like Bing and Google offer, we have to scrape tens of millions of examples from real-life people translating things every single day in order to keep up with slang and public events. Language is alive. The world is alive. You can't just stuff a language translator once. You have to keep on refilling it. And so we're totally reliant on the very people that we're putting out of work. So it's fundamentally like a form of theft through dishonesty. Okay, so so we've, we've hit the ground running here. I want to back up for a second and try to perform a an exorcism on, on some bad intuitions here, because you know, I think people come into this, we've, we've trained ourselves to expect much of our digital content to be free and free forever. And it now seems just the normal state of the world. And of course, podcasts and blogs and journalism and ultimately music should be free. Or if it's not free, it should be subsidized by ads. And I think there's this, this sense that the TV and radio were free, so there's this this precedent, and advertising has its excesses. But I think people feel, well, what, what's you know, what's wrong with ads? Some ads are kind of cool looking and amusing and stylish. So, and we've lived with them for forever. And then there's these other elements, like you know, having a personalized news feed. What's what's wrong with that? Why can't Facebook just give me what I want? So let, let's just bring this the concept of or the role of ads back in here. So the most people have decided that in the face of this, the, the way to monetize work and inspire good work is to build an ad economy. And this answers the need to have information be free to all of the the young people who who want to get it that way. And and you know now we we who used to be young still want to get it that way. And this is something that, you know, many of us have are fighting against who have been paying attention to the consequence of, of relying on ads. And, you know, I've decided that I, that I can't credibly read ads on this podcast. I know that you're, you're more sanguine about the state of podcasting than most forms of media at the moment. And I should say is that for, you know, many podcasters, because I've taken a position against ads on my own podcast, many people come to me wanting to do the same. And the truth is, I don't, actually even know what to tell other podcasters at this point, because I think I'm an outlier in this space where it, it works for me. I found an audience who, and, and some percentage of, of the audience will support this work, but it seems to me by no means straightforward to say that, that any podcaster who wants to will, will find an audience to support their work. And I think in the, given the current expectations, I think anyone who does decide to, to forego ads will be paying a, an economic price for doing that at, at, with, with whatever audience at whatever scale, given, given the expectation that, that podcasts should be free. So it's kind of hard to, to advise people, even when I'm successfully implementing an ad-free model here. Well, I, I need to correct you about something. Um, my objection is not to advertising, but to continuous behavior modification by algorithm. 
which right. is really a very different thing. So, well, well, it overlaps. It overlaps in one case in that. Well, I, so I'm I'm worried as a podcaster about the the behavior modification or or the perceived behavior modification that can happen to me as a as a just a broker of information. I, I don't you know it's like a credibility concern. I, I just can't you know given what I'm trying trying to do here. I don't feel that I can personally shill for any products, but I, I think other podcasters can. I think it's completely convergent with the brand of other podcasters to say, "Oh, listen, here's the." Here's the greatest, you know, T-shirt I've ever found. You know, you're, you know, you're going to want this T-shirt, and that that works for people who. <laughs> I know. I've heard some really. I uh, listening to some of the podcasters have to read their ads when it's clearly bizarre. It's it's actually kind of entertaining. But the thing is, as long as every listener hears the same ad, right, and everybody can understand what's going on, that's okay. I mean, the reason podcasting is still, in my view, an unmolested, authentic medium is that there aren't algorithms calculating um, what somebody hears on a podcast. It's still, it's it's crafted by you. And if it includes ads, people can tell it includes ads. It isn't, there isn't some meta podcast that's taking snippets and creating a feed for people. There isn't some algorithm that's in, at least so far, that is like a changing what you say with, uh, you know, uh, audio signal processing technology to suit the needs of somebody who's paying from the side, some advertiser. Uh, there's not a calculation of a feed designed by behaviorist theorists to change people. And as long as it's just a crafted thing, even if it, in, if it includes commercial communication, I don't think it destroys society. I think um, it does start to destroy society when everything becomes really manipulative and creepy in a way that people can't possibly follow or understand, then it starts to undermine human dignity and self-determination. And that's exactly what's going on with social media companies and the way searches run and uh, the way uh, YouTube videos are selected for you and fed to you and many other examples. And and, and that's, that's where we really have the most serious problem. So what is the solution now? What, if, if you could reboot the internet, how would you do it? Uh, I would do a few things. The first thing I would do is um, encourage everybody involved to gradually bring money back into the world of information instead of expunging it. And uh, I think people should be earn, able to earn a living when what they add to the network is valuable. I mean, right now we're creating the most valuable companies in history based on the information that people add to them. And meanwhile, we're creating more and more economic uh, uh, separation, more and more inequality. And obviously that can't go on forever. And the only way to correct it is to start paying the people who are adding the information, that's the value, and grow the pie. It doesn't mean that I think the big tech companies should be shut down or that they're evil. I actually kind of like a lot of them. Uh, it just means... Um, that we have to get back to a world where when people add value, they get paid for it, and it's honest. And of course, uh, that the, the flip side of that is just as Netflix proved, and for that matter, Apple with the App Store and many other examples, we have to encourage business models where people pay for what they want. So, you know, Google should, Google should say, hey, search won't be free after 10 years. We're going to gradually start removing the free option, and what you'll get in exchange for that is uh, no more commercial bias and crap on our search results. Uh, this is just going to be serving you. You're going to pay for it. Facebook, same thing. We're going we're, we're gonna to commit to not having any ads in 10 years. And uh, yeah, you'll start paying for it, but it'll be a great deal. It'll be affordable. You'll get, you'll get peak Facebook and just like 
you got peak TV from places mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, HBO and Netflix. We're going to give you peak social media where you can get better information and less crap. But um, the, the, the other part of that is a little more complicated, uh, which is if you keep your eye out for a piece I have coming out with a colleague in the Harvard Business Review. Sorry to, I know it's a snobby thing, but anyway, no, you have it's to. Good. It's a place to start. We're starting to, to scope out uh, how to do this in much more detail than before. And a lot of it has to do with creating in-between institutions. Um, right now, if there's nothing but a bunch of individuals and in one giant tech platform like a Facebook or a Google, there's this bizarre situation where we're petitioning the central authority that we have no other power over that we didn't vote for to, to police our own speech and to police our own behavior. And it's just not tenable. We're demanding authoritarianism. Um, and the way around that is to create middle-sized organizations that are analogous to things like scientific journals or universities or trade unions or many other examples where you can, voluntar- you can voluntarily join these things and they collectively bargain for you so you can get paid decently instead of having a giant race to the bottom. And they can become brands in themselves that enforce quality um, and become trustworthy. And so we have to create this this um, this sense of intermediate structures. And uh, remember, in the, in the past, before the internet, the place where um, excellence and compassion and trustworthiness came from was not the central government declaring it, but rather things like universities and scientific journals and high quality um, news outlets developing a reputation and being selective. And but that was all voluntary, uh, voluntary. So it wasn't authoritarian. And and, and so. If you have in-between-sized organizations, you can have all these effects that would be authoritarian if they were global and directed from the center. And all of those institutions are exactly the ones that were weakened and destroyed when Facebook said, we're going to move fast and break things. The stuff that was broken were all of those in-between organizations. And so we have to rebuild them in a new way in order to have this more humane and sustainable internet. It's worth reminding ourselves after those two clips that social media is not entirely destructive. It has potential to do plenty of good, and it has realized some of that potential. There are personal stories of friendships, reconnections, knowledge growth, business opportunities, and meaningful political change which can credit themselves to the advent of social media. And it can offer valuable, real-time information. So we'll try our best to emphasize a hope to not throw out the perennial baby with the bathwater and the criticism. On that note, we'll listen in now to Sam's conversation with Jack Dorsey. Dorsey co-founded Twitter and is cognizant of the monster which he's created and the struggle to harness it for good. Since this conversation with Sam, Dorsey stepped down from his role as CEO of Twitter, though he's still the CEO of Square which is a financial tool he also founded. We'll resist the temptation to read into the move away from Twitter as admitting defeat in his efforts to tame the beast. In this portion of their conversation, Sam and Dorsey discuss how Twitter has entrenched itself into the political and journalistic environment, for better or worse. Dorsey mentions the echo chamber or filter bubble phenomenon, which describes only seeing and hearing news and opinion which coheres with your particular perspective. This phenomenon tends to warp one's worldview and exacerbate partisanship. After we hear from Dorsey, we'll offer an alternative analogy, which might be even more potent and poisonous to our psychology and democracy. 
We're going to allow this clip to get into some of the specific policy knots that get tied when any experiment like social media gets underway. Here is Sam with Jack Dorsey from episode 148. So you've got these two massive companies, which at least from the, the public-facing view seem diametrically opposed in, in the level of controversy they, they, they bring to the world and to your life, presumably. I mean, Square is a, it seems like a very straightforward, successful, noble pursuit, which, about which I can't imagine there's a lot of controversy. I'm, I'm sure there's some that, that I haven't noticed, but it must be nothing like what you're dealing with with Twitter. How are you triaging the needs of a, a big company that is just functioning like a normal big company and Twitter, which is something which you know, on any given day can be just fr- you know, front page news everywhere, given, how, given the, the sense of either how it's helping the world. I mean, the, the thing that's amazing about Twitter is that it's, clear, it's enabling you know, revolutions that we might want to support, right? Or the empowerment of dissidents, and I mean, there's just this one, you know, Saudi teenager uh, who was, you know, tweeting from a, a hotel room in the Bangkok airport that her, she was worried that her her parents would kill her, and I don't think it's too much to say that Twitter may have saved her life in that case. I'm sure there are many other cases like this where, you know, she got she was granted asylum in, in Canada, and so and these these stories become front page news, and then the antithetical story becomes front page news. So we know that you know ISIS recruits terrorists on Twitter, or there are fears that misinformation spread there undermines democracy. And how do you deal with being a normal CEO and being a CEO in this other channel, which is anything but normal? Well, I, both companies and both spaces that they create in have their own share of controversy. But I find that in the financial realm, it's a lot more private. Mm. Whereas with communication, it has to be open. And I would prefer them both to be out in the open. I would prefer to work more in public. I'm fascinated by this idea of, of being able to, to work in public, make decisions in public, make mistakes in public. And I get there because of my childhood. I was, I was a huge fan of punk rock back in the day, and then that transitioned to hip hop. And that led me to a lot of open source where people would just get up on stage and do their thing, and they were terrible. And you saw them a month later, and they were a little bit better, and then a month later, they're a little bit better. And we see the same thing with open source, which led me to technology ultimately. But so I, I approach it with, with that understanding of that, you know, we're not here just to make one single statement that stands the test of time, that our medium at Twitter is conversation, and conversation evolves. And Ideally, it evolves in a way that uh, we all learn from it. There's not a lot of people in the world today that would walk away from Twitter saying, oh, I, I learned something, but that would be my goal. Mm. And we need to figure out what element of the service and what element of the product we need to bolster or increase or, or change in order to do that. So I guess in my role of CEO at Twitter, it's, how do I lead this company in the open, realizing that we're going to take a lot of bruises along the way, but in the long term, what we get out of that ideally is is earning some trust. Mm-hmm. And we're not there yet, but 
That's the intention. Well, on the, on the topic of um, I learned something, actually, that's, this is one of my, this is actually the only idea that I've ever had for improving Twitter, which <laughs> is to have a, in addition to a, a like button, this changed my mind button, or I learned something mm-hmm. button, so, mm-hmm. that, so that you can track. I mean, one, it would just kind of instantiate a new norm where people tweeting would aspire to have that effect on people. Like, like this is it's actually about dialogue. It's about debate. One of the, one of the ideas we, we had uh, way back in the day, um, there was instead of a, we had a, the, the button was actually called favorite before it was called like. Mm-hmm. We transitioned to like, I, I think at one of our most reactive phases within the company, we were drafting from a known behavior that you saw on Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. But we were going to, we, there was a proposal to change it to thanks, which I like a lot. I, I think mm-hmm. it kind of gets at some of the the things you're trying to express to the degree to which you're influencing someone's thinking or you're changing someone's mind uh, is another level. But to build a service that people can express gratitude for things they find valuable more directly instead of the emptiness of a like button is something that we are thinking a lot about right now. Right. The okay. incentives are where we are in the conversation. We realize that what we need to do is not going to be done by changing policy. What we need to do is look fundamentally at the mechanics of the service mm. that we haven't looked at in 12 years. The, the fact that we have one action to follow and it's following accounts. And following accounts in the example of Brexit, for example, if you followed a bunch of accounts that were spouting off reasons to, to leave, that's all you get. You have right. no other ability to see another perspective of the conversation unless you did the work to follow the account of someone who was opposed to that view. Whereas we do have the infrastructure in the service right now in the form of search and trends. And if you were to follow the vote leave trend, 95% of the conversation would be reasons to leave, but 5% would be some considerations to make to stay. Mm-hmm. But we don't make it easy for anyone to do that, and therefore no one does it. So these are exactly the things we're looking at in terms of, like, is like really the thing that helps contribution back to the global conversation? My own personal view is that it doesn't. My own personal view is it's empty, and it's a lot more destructive than, than what we considered it to be by well, you know, everyone knows how to take this action, so we should put it on our, our service as well. As you were talking, it <clears throat> made me think you could have a kind of dashboard that showed people how siloed they were in terms of, mm-hmm. kind of partisan information. Like, if, like if, if people may not know that they're getting only one side of a story. Well, we, yeah. we actually saw that in the 2016 elections. We did some research of the connections. We, we've been spending a lot more time not looking at the content that people are saying, but the behaviors and the connections between accounts and uh, interactions and replies. And one of the things that was, that was very evident during the lead up to the election was the, um, just looking at our journalist constituency, which was one of the most important, is one of the most important constituencies on Twitter to my mind. Yeah. The amount of journalists on the left who were following folks on the right end of the spectrum was very, very small. The amount of journalists on the right end of the spectrum following folks on the left was extremely high. 
That, that's interesting. It was, even it was just that factoid is, is yeah. worth getting out there. Yeah. There's, a, there's a good graphic that uh, a, an MIT lab um, called Cortico put out that illustrates this effect, and you can immediately see what happened at least in the media sphere in terms of these, these uh, filter bubbles and echo chambers that we tend to create. But that is something that I, I do take a lot of responsibility around. We have definitely helped to create these isolated chambers of, of thought. Mm. And it's because of the mechanics of how our system works. J just the simplest thing of emphasizing the follower account, only allowing the following of an account versus an interest, a topic, or a conversation. These are the things that don't allow any fluidity and uh, evolution. It's very, very rigid. And you mm. have to do a lot of work to get to some of the fluidity that we that we know Twitter is, but you you have to be an expert to understand that it's even possible. Right. Okay. So let, let's push into some of the areas of controversy here because you know it seems to me you have an extremely hard job, and and I so it's hard to imagine how you can actually get it right, actually do it so well that you won't continuously have this ambient level of criticism about how you're doing it. So, and the job is to figure out how to get a handle on the, the toxicity on your platform. So, and it, this has so many forms, one could scarcely list them all, but from, you know, trolling to harassing to conspiracy theories and misinformation and lies to doxing to what is generally called hate speech, but it is speech that is, in the political context, protected by the First Amendment, at least in the, in the United States, but you have a global platform subject to different laws in different countries. How are you trying to deal with this problem? And, and I mean, you can feel free to grab any specific strand yeah. of that. I'll, I'll start by saying that um, the problem is more amplified in particular parts of Twitter. It is definitely the case that it is rampant in politics, Twitter, and it it comes with a lot of a lot of patterns which we're now starting to see be more consistent. So first and foremost, just to take it up a few notches, we we asked we were asked a question some time ago: uh, What if you could measure the health of conversation? Could you measure the health of conversation? Mm. In the same way that you can measure the health of, you know, the human body, and we thought that was a very intriguing question because we've all had conversations where we felt it to be just completely toxic, and the result of that is ideally we walk away from it. And we've also had conversations that feel empowering that we learn something from and we want to stay in it. And we actually see this digitally as well. We see people walk away from conversations on Twitter. And we see people stay in conversations and persist them on Twitter. And we can, we're, we're to the point where we can, we can actually see it in our numbers and measure it. Mm. So we went a little bit deeper with that. And, um, and this must be algorithmic, right? We're not talking about individuals tracking. It's not algorithmic, but then checked by, by people as right. well, just to verify like the, our models are, are working. We took it a step further, and um, so so what is what is health? Health is has indicators like your your body has an indicator of health, which is your temperature, and um, your your temperature indicates whether your system more or less is in balance. If it's above ninety point six, then something is wrong, and we need to figure out what the measurement tools are to figure out 
what that measurement is, what that mm -hmm. metric is, which is in, in this case, the thermometer. And then, you know, we, we go down the line and as we develop solutions, we can, we can see what effect they have on it. So we've been thinking about this problem in terms of what we're calling conversational health. And we're, we're at the phase right now where we're trying to figure out the right indicators of conversational health. And mm -hmm. we have four placeholders. The first is shared attention. So what percentage of the conversation is attentive to the same thing versus uh, disparate? The second is shared reality. So this is not determining what facts are facts, but what percentage of the conversation are sharing the same facts. The third is receptivity. So this is where we measure toxicity um, and people's desire to walk away from something. And the fourth is variety of perspective. And what we want to do is, is get readings on all of these things and then understanding that we're not going to optimize for one. We, 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 we want to try to keep everything in, in balance. And by increasing one, it probably has a negative effect on another. So you could increase the variety of perspective, but decrease the shared reality right. in doing so. So step one is getting a sense of what the current state is through, through measurement. And um, a lot of that we intend to do through um, algorithms measuring how people talk. Uh, and, and then, of course, humans pairing with that to make decisions around solutions. And, you know, in the same way that, like, you're, you might be sick and I will offer you, a, you know, this bottle of water and also offer you a glass of wine. Based on all of our experience, if you reach for the water and you drink the water, you, there's more probability that you limit the amount of time that your system is out of balance and you're, you're not healthy. If you choose the wine, you'll probably increase the time it takes. So how would we think about giving people more options to at least drive towards more conversational health? So that's the abstract level. At a tangible, tactical level, we're looking at behavior. We're looking at um, how people interact with one another, the network that they create and they operate on. One of the things we've noticed is if, if someone is going into your replies and slurring, slinging slurs at you or just being extremely disruptive or doxing you, there's a high probability that they're doing it to other people as well. And if we can notice that, we can predict it and we can at least add some friction into the spread of those tweets into the shared areas of the service. So there's the Twitter that majority of people spend their time in, which is what they follow. And then there's the shared areas that anyone can inject themselves into, like replies, like search, and like trends. Hmm. We have a role and a responsibility, and you know, it, it, it's our job ultimately in terms of what we amplify to what level. And where we ultimately put the attention in the shared areas. When you follow someone explicitly or when you follow a topic explicitly, that audience is earned and you should see every single thing that that person might spout at you. But the problems that we're seeing with harassment is I don't know this person and they're just coming at me. And they're doing so because they're gaming our system or we haven't provided enough tools to ward that off. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at behavior, we're looking at product fixes, like what if you could actually, you being a host, 
when you tweet, what if you could actually um, have more control over the replies, whether it be who replies or you could hide a reply, not delete it from Twitter or the internet, but just hide it from your conversation. What does that do for you? What does that do for the experience? It has positives for mm -hmm. the author, but it also has negatives in that you're likely creating more of a filter bubble. And we see a lot of the power of Twitter has been speaking truth to power. So you can imagine some folks that you disagree with heavily moderating or having teams of people heavily moderating their own reply space, which takes out some of the conversation that might have been enlightening or emboldening to you. You heard Dorsey and Sam mention the echo chamber and filter bubble problem of social media. And you heard Dorsey talk about some of the potential rules-based adjustments to either enforce, nudge, or otherwise influence what he called healthy conversational behavior. There's an argument to be made that there's a law of interaction where the dilemma of inescapable oversight becomes apparent. To stay briefly on that point, consider the classic dilemma of a free speech absolutist. Let's say you're organizing a speaker event. Let's place it on a college campus where emotions and social relations are intense. You know that a particular speaker you've lined up is going to ignite some strong reactions. You are quite certain that this speaker is going to deliver information that's politically extreme and aggressive. Let's say that you expect a thousand people to show up. You estimate that 25% of the audience will take the speaker very seriously. You estimate that half of them are likely to engage in direct action because of the fervor of the speech. Let's say that half of them have access to weaponry. And let's say that leaves a handful of them who represent a serious risk to others on the campus. Now, all of those probabilities run through your head and you think the chances of immediate, direct, physical harm or violence is pretty low. But it isn't zero. You also factor in the effects of general threat and intimidation, which are harder to calculate. And as you build a consequentialist scale helping you decide whether the event should proceed, you of course have to place things like a principle of free speech and a general faith in an open marketplace of ideas, even bad or disagreeable ones, on the other side of the ledger. This dilemma is so familiar in a democratic society as to be mundane at this point, but that doesn't diminish its importance at all. The event organizer facing this dilemma has three general courses of action. One, cancel the event. Two, let the event go on unchecked. And three, consider risk mitigation measures. That last one, the risk mitigation stuff, Think security at the door, a speaker offering a counterpoint of view, time limits on how long each speaker can speak, background checks of the attendees, post-event information forums, etc. That's the stuff that gets complicated and can devolve into political philosophies hardening into partisan battles. And all of those mitigation considerations of a speaker event have direct analogies to a social media platform like Twitter. The security at the door being identity and age verification measures upon sign-up. The counterpoint speaker being an algorithm that ensures you'll see a certain post after engaging with another one. The time limits might be limits on character or frequency of posting. 
Post-event forums could be something like the automatic links to COVID or election fraud information that have become popular. All of those efforts come with their own familiar complications and political philosophies. There's a line of argumentation that something like Twitter has become, or even should become, something like the public square. From a legal perspective, this is a suggestion that different rules should apply, where the preferences of a private company to manage its interests are overridden by a public interest in free and open participation. Certain private enterprises have crossed over this threshold in history and become de facto pseudo-public utilities, which were then codified as such, most famously telephone and train lines. If Twitter is best thought of as a public square, then certain bannings or cancellations could be derided as censorship, akin to denying someone their right to free expression, protest, and assembly, particularly in the American legal framework. But if it is not a public square, but rather a curated conversation space run by a private company, then it is something more like a private social club, and bannings and cancellations are more akin to revoking someone's membership. This latter analogy is closer to what Sam thinks about the issue, not just from a legal perspective, but from a practical and moral one. Perhaps the blurring of this line happens because the service is free to use, and has proven to be civilizationally disruptive, or destructive, depending upon who you ask. A globally popular, visible, and private social club with no membership fee or cover charge doesn't really exist in the brick-and-mortar world, especially a club as large as Twitter. Though if it did, the host would certainly try to sell you drinks at the bar and maybe eavesdrop on your conversations so that they could point advertisers and political influence groups who had paid for their entry to the club over to your table if you happen to be talking about something they could exploit. And if you start causing a problem in the club and making it harder for them to sell drinks and eavesdrop for their paid customers, then they feel entitled to throw you out on the street. After all, there was a sign posted with the rules on the door. Even if no one really reads that stuff, it changes all the time and it's pretty sloppily written anyway. In Sam's view, this analogy seems to describe Twitter at the time of this writing, at least from a legal perspective. All of this stuff is moving rather quickly, though, and legal frameworks seem to be struggling to keep up. As a quick example, there was a question pertaining to the legality of a president blocking users on Twitter. The argument centered around the question of whether the tweets themselves should be considered official communication from a public official delivered in a public forum and therefore legally required to be available to all citizens. But by the time that question was being tackled in courtrooms, the accelerating game of legal whack-a-mole was falling way behind. In fact, that particular case was tied up in appeals and challenges for years, before being eventually thrown out by the Supreme Court as moot or no longer relevant. Because there was a new president, and the previous one had been blocked from the entire platform anyway which raised a whole new set of legal questions. And from a practical and moral perspective, the incentives and biases that we've been discussing in this compilation thus far pose obvious questions about whether this space really should be described or endorsed as a public forum that enjoys all the legal protections that designation brings. Perhaps all of this is why Sam is only half-joking when he suggests that Jack Dorsey should delete Twitter and collect the Nobel Peace Prize for doing it. In any case, 
the seat that Dorsey used to sit in becomes very hot eventually. Now, we're going to move to a conversation with a psychologist, Jonathan Haidt. Haidt has been worried about the effects of social media, particularly on teenagers. What is alarming about some of his findings is that some disturbing data in regards to girls' self-harm and bullying behavior doesn't just track with the general rise of social media itself, but actually can be traced back to specific innovations, such as the advent of the like or retweet buttons. Haidt has begun to worry whether a fully connected network is inherently more psychologically vulnerable than a segmented one. To offer an alternative and perhaps more pernicious analogy to the familiar echo chamber one, think of social media as creating a glass cylinder. In a glass cylinder, your expressed ideas will echo back to you and amplify, but you'll also be able to be seen by those outside the cylinder. And that can amplify some of our worst passive-aggressive behavior. Think of being at a restaurant where a group is sitting at a booth talking to each other, but they're talking a bit too loudly. They're all in agreement, but the topic is a controversial political subject, like climate change, gender roles, or immigration policy. The diners at that booth are talking to each other, sure, but they're very aware of being overheard by the partisans at the next booth or sitting at the bar, who might have some hats, shirts, fashions, or other signals that peg them as political enemies. And isn't that really the point? To be overheard and maybe even arouse a response or confrontation? They don't need to be convincing each other of any of these points on which they all agree, but they're certainly finding ways to annoy and provoke the other patrons. And now, our restaurant manager may be in Jack Dorsey's former seat, considering what kind of actions or rules they might want to implement. We've likely all witnessed this kind of behavior in the offline world. In the online world, this kind of thing is sometimes called subtweeting. But there's a case to be made that all tweeting is subtweeting to a certain degree. Perhaps this analogy spells doom for other, almost pure echo chamber platforms like Truth or Gab. But the echo chamber problem is potent, whether the walls are opaque or transparent. So let's listen to some of John Haidt's thoughts on this psychological battlefield. Haidt has appeared on Making Sense three separate times. We're going to go to his second appearance, episode 137, called Safe Space. I was reading your discussion of cognitive behavioral therapy and the kinds of cognitive distortions that it tries to remedy. And it's hard not to see social media as, on some level, the best tool for amplifying these distortions we have ever devised. When you look at this list of overgeneralizing and dichotomous thinking and labeling and negative filtering and blaming and mind reading, all of it is the substance of certainly Twitter, but you know mostly what's happening on social media. And in addition, there's something else happening that is amplifying this in a way that has really never existed on earth because when you look at the people you are doing all of these things to overgeneralizing thinking dichotomously labeling blaming etc on social media you are actually not even understanding their behavior in its true context because you don't see what they see the phenomenon of information siloing 
leaves us all actually unable to accurately interpret other people's behavior because we don't see the information they're imbibing every minute on social media. And so, I, you know, what I have to do is correct for my ignorance in that I just don't know what degree to which they are consuming information or misinformation that, that I'm not even seeing. So, yes, I, I do agree that social media has changed something very fundamental. Um, and, and one way to see this is think about the context of communication. What are we doing when we, when we communicate? And when, when two people talk in private, they might be trying to influence each other. They might just be trying to bond. Um, there's all sorts of things that they might be doing. Um, and, and it's difficult but possible to take the other person's perspective. Now put an audience nearby, put them on stage and have them talk. Uh, you know, as you and I are doing now, you know, we're, you know, you and I are very experienced at this. Um, if we were speaking in private, I don't know if it'd be very different, but in this case, but, you know, if we were having more of a fight, uh, you know, it would be very, it would probably be very different. So put, put people in front of an audience and then, and that changes the nature of what is said and the degree to which you want to take the other person's perspective. Now put them in front of a giant audience that you cannot see and that you will never get a sense of what they believe on average. All you will hear from is the fringes, the people who will say the most horrible things about you. And in front of that audience now, you are no longer, you know, you and I are no longer talking. We're each talking to our respective audiences. So I think it's just fundamentally changed the wiring of society in ways that at first, you know, the people at Facebook, I think they're very idealistic. They really think that connecting the world was a, was a, a, a valiant mission. And in some ways it was, but I think they had too rosy a view of human nature and all kinds of bad things happen when, when you're connecting everyone. So for example, the other day I got an email uh, let me see if I can find it. I got an email. It was from some anonymous servant. It basically just said, fuck you, asshole. And I thought, wow. So it, when everybody's connected to everybody, the instant somebody reads something I, you know, that I, I wrote and doesn't like me, they can follow their feelings, go to this anonymous server and send me whatever they want. You know, of course, they could send me bombs in the U.S. mail, too. But, you know, connecting everybody to everybody so that they can instantly discharge their spleen is just a really bad idea. And I think we're wrestling with it. I think we're going to find some ways out. So, for example, um, you know, I don't. I think I don't ever want to be in an in an unregulated neighborhood on the internet ever again. By unregulated, what I mean is, people can go there who nobody knows. There's nobody can ever find if they make a death threat. Nobody can even tell who they are. There's no reason why I would ever want to be in such a neighborhood. There's nothing good that comes of it. But you're on Twitter, though, right? Isn't Twitter such a neighborhood? Um, Yes, I guess it is actually. Um, and I am on it because I feel like I do need to participate in the public debate. But it, Twitter would be much better if every, if every single person, their identity could be verified. Not by me. It's totally fine that people can be on where I don't know who they are. But Twitter needs to know who they are so that if they threaten violence, Twitter can do more than just shut down their account. Um, if people actually threaten violence, I, I think, you know, if, if everybody knows that their name is known at least to Twitter, the real name, verified real name is known to Twitter, I think we're going to get a lot less of the bad stuff. So, and what, you know, what I get is pretty mild. What you get is, of course, a lot worse. But I'm really persuaded by the studies that show that if you're a female journalist or a black journalist, you just get mountains of like rape threats, racist threats. So, you know, there's no, nothing good comes of that. We shouldn't be, you know, there's no, no platform should allow that to happen. We're going to jump quickly to Haidt's most recent appearance on Making Sense from episode 204 to hear his response when Sam voiced his frustration with the state of the American political situation. You'll hear Haidt point out the variable of social media 
with a strong analogy. I mean, when you just look at, at the way in which we have shed influence in the world in the last few years, where we have just by turns terrified our allies and gratified our actual adversaries, it's just, yeah, it's mind-boggling that you have a, a, something like 40% of American society that sees absolutely no problem with this. I mean, worse, they see some, this as some form of progress. Yeah. Okay. So let me, so here's the metaphor that's helped me understand the, the, the otherwise just unfathomable state of, of our, of our country now. So I, I began to feel around 2014, 2015, that something was deeply wrong. Like, like something has changed about the universe. And I played with this. I just had this uncomfortable feeling for, for a couple of years. And finally, like a year or two ago, I started working this, this metaphor into my talks. Suppose that, suppose that God one day just doubled the gravitational constant. So, you know, in our universe, there's like 25 physical constants, the mass of an electron, things like that. And if God just said one day, let's just double the gravitational constant just for fun, like everything would go totally haywire in the physical world. And, you know, planets would move in their orbits and planes would come out of the sky and it would just be, you know, bizarre and disastrous. And uh, I think that what happened is basically that, but in the social world, and that is, you know, connectivity is generally good, but we're now hyper-connected. So that's changing the basic parameter of the universe. We're so connected, but it's more than that. It's not just, you know, like, oh, we're, you know, because giving us telephones and email. I mean, we've been getting more and more connected for centuries, and that's generally been a good thing. It's the nature of the connectivity. It's connectivity in which we are communicating, not privately, but in front of an audience, and the audience rates mm. the communication. So this, yeah. I think, is what social media has done to us. That is, when Facebook and, and MySpace came out, it was just, you know, look, here's my page, here are all my friends, here are the bands I like. You know, there's some showing off, but it wasn't toxic and it was not bad for democracy. I have an article in The Atlantic last November with Tobias Rose Stockwell, where we show how beginning in 2009, when Facebook added the like button and then Twitter copied it and Twitter added the retweet button and Facebook copied it, and then they both algorithmized their, their news feeds much more. So between 2009 and 2012, the nature of human connectivity changed radically in ways that I think are very, very bad for democracy. That is, it wasn't just that we could now talk to each other privately for free. It's that a lot more of our conversation was now in public being raided, which means it was inauthentic, often dishonest, and with a lot more intimidation. You know, I hate Twitter. I hate going on Twitter. I'm also fascinated by it. And I, you know, I, it's like opening a garbage can and watching rats and cockroaches fighting, and there's something fascinating about it. But things really changed after 2012. And the Russians noticed it, and they've been trying to mess with our democracy for 50 years. In 2014 is when they realized, hey, there's this great outrage machine that the Americans have built for us. And it's, we don't have to go over there. We don't have to fly agents over to mess them up. We can just sit here in St. Petersburg and do it. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, I hear your incomprehension. I hear your, you know, your frustration. Things are terribly wrong. So, yeah, no, I agree that the style of communication and it's created a, an information space where it really is just total war all the yes, time that's right. in information terms. That's right. Yeah, and that's no way. Yeah, and I don't think our democracy can survive that. I think that if things keep going the way they're going, our country is going to fail catastrophically. I'm not predicting that it will because I don't think things will keep on going the way they're going. But 
the trends are really bad and they've been really bad for, for at least 10 years, more than that even. If you listen to that full episode, you'll hear Height suggest that identity verification would go a long way to improving social media. The solutions and complications of social media are fast-moving targets, so it's important to note that that conversation was from 2018. The experimentation with mitigation efforts is very much alive and underway. Opinions about how well the governance efforts work, how disingenuous they might be, and how necessary they are, are in no short supply. We're going to stay in this area, examining the troubling mass psychological phenomena that are becoming apparent in the echo chamber or glass cylinder environments of social media. Let's go to a conversation Sam had with Cass Sunstein, who's a prolific author, economist, and legal scholar. He's pumped out best-selling books with compelling names like Nudge, Noise, Sludge, How Change Happens, Too Much Information, Infotopia, Conformity, and many more. The Sunstein collection is expansive, and all of it is highly recommended. His work often focuses on the unconscious factors which ultimately affect our actions. Things like which items at a grocery store are influencing you to purchase others, or what colors certain subway signs should be to reduce violence, or whether or not we should list the calorie counts of popcorn at movie theaters. So his interest in how social media may be pushing our behaviors is a natural fit. You'll hear Sunstein refer to personal and social issues raised by the daily me, which is the analogy he uses for a sort of personalized, individualized news diet. We'll listen in on his appearance on Making Sense from episode 101, Defending the Republic. Well, I want to talk about social media and how Twitter and Facebook have been behaving themselves. But before we, we get there, I think we should talk about the phenomenon of, of hyperpolarization in groups. And this is a, this a general phenomenon that you describe in the book where like-minded people become more extreme once they begin associating with one another. And this is, it may sound paradoxical on its face, but it, it, it really functions by dynamics that are, are fairly easy to understand. Perhaps you should explain, the, the, maybe the Colorado study is the place to start here, but talk about what happens in groups among the like-minded. Okay, so what we did in Colorado uh, was to get a bunch of people in Boulder, which is a left of center, together to talk about climate change, affirmative action, and same-sex unions. We asked them for their views privately and anonymously. Then we had them discuss the issues together and come to a verdict. And then we asked them to record their views privately and anonymously. And uh, uh, there was reason to expect uh, that if you got a group of people together, they'd end up coming to the middle of what the group members privately thought, and that would be their verdict, and then they'd all be in the middle. But that's not what happened. Uh, They were kind of to the left on all three issues. They went way to the left on all three issues as a result of talking to each other. So the left of center people in Boulder uh, had some diversity on climate change and affirmative action before they talked to each other. After they talked to each other, they were more extreme, they were more confident, and they were pretty well unified on all of those issues. This isn't just a left of center phenomenon. We did the same thing in Colorado Springs, which is right of center. 
And as the people in Boulder went whoosh to the left, the people in Colorado Springs went whoosh to the right. And it's just because they were talking with like-minded others. So the basic rule is that usually people who are inclined in a certain direction end up, after talking to each other, thinking a more extreme version of what they thought before they started to talk. And we can explain, I think, why sometimes in primaries, both of our political parties go left and go right has something to do with this, why within cults, people end up sometimes getting all extreme. Uh, That's often the phenomenon of group polarization, as it's called. Why uh, terrorists often get radicalized. And also why people who, you know, do great things like attack uh, uh, extreme injustice, why they get radicalized, because they're all talking to each other. And you say that the, the, the mechanisms are pretty intuitive. I think you're completely right. That the leading one is if you have a group of people who think, let's say, that the minimum wage should be raised, that's what they tend to think. Some of them aren't sure. They're talking with each other. They'll hear a lot of arguments about why the minimum wage should be raised, because that's what most of them think. And they won't hear a lot of the arguments the other way. And the arguments that they hear will be kind of tentative as well as few. And then if they're listening to each other after they've heard all the arguments, they'll think, oh, minimum wage really should be raised a lot. And it's just because of the arguments they're hearing. And if you have a group of people who tend to think the minimum wage should not be raised, exactly the mirror image of what I've described will happen. And uh, I'm smiling as I talk because we actually taped our conversations in Colorado. And so I've seen them. And in real time, you can completely uh, see the process where the right people on the right are going more right because they're talking to people who think conservative thoughts and the conservative thoughts are going to look numerous and excellent and the disagreement will seem rare and and kind of stupid there's also this phenomenon of reputation management within the group where you you have your your concern for how you're appearing in this group that's now getting constellated around a a consensus and that will tend to filter out any expressions of doubt about this forming consensus, and, and it it's functions as a kind of attractor state for convergence. You're completely right. So in Boulder, our left-of-center groups, uh, you can see them talking about climate change, whether the U.S. should sign an international agreement. And some of the people who are left-of-center were a little nervous about that. They thought, you know, I don't know what would happen to American sovereignty if we yielded to an international agreement. Um, they just weren't sure, but you could see them looking at their fellow citizens of Boulder and thinking, oh man, if I say that, I'm going to look really bad in their eyes. So I'm just going to agree with them. This strikes me as yet another argument against identity politics. Do you see a connection there? I think exactly right. That, uh, identity politics where let's say you think, you know, as a African-American woman, I tend to think this, or I should think this, or as a white male, you know, I'm in favor of this and not that, Uh, or as a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, I tend to think this. That's uh, individually deadening because it prevents you from using your own critical faculties, and it also contributes to, uh, let's say, uh, movements that are going to have a hard time communicating with one another. 
because they have uh, polarized themselves to extremes. And and one point that you you flagged in passing that I just want to make explicit suggests that that all extremism isn't bad because there are extreme forms of intellectual insight or moral energy purposed in the right direction. So I think you you just cited the fact that someone could be fighting an injustice and getting more and more radicalized in their energy around engaging that that project, perhaps at even great personal expense. There are cases where we want extremism when it's pointed in the right direction. Right. Barry Goldwater said something like that, and he was right. At the uh, very conservative uh, kind of Reagan predecessor uh, said something very pro-extremism, and whether or not he was right on his particular political views, he was right in signaling that the attack on slavery was extremist at its, in its time, and it was quite right. The American Revolution, breaking away from Britain, that was pretty extreme, and it was quite right. The attack on apartheid in the South Africa was pretty extreme, uh, and uh, while things aren't going so great in South Africa right now, it's not very good to have a majority of the population treated as a lower caste. Okay, so so we have a picture of people living in ghettos of a sort. I mean, really, intellectual ghettos, moral ghettos, political ghettos, and they're they're walled in by confirmation bias and reputation management within a group, and they're generally happy to stay there, and 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 they will defend the ghetto from anyone who tries to break down its walls. And you have we have phenomenon like the backfire effect, where what you you present people with a cogent argument or you know the most well validated facts that you can get in hand against their cherished view, and they merely double down in the face of these intrusions. They become actually more confirmed in their beliefs. What does this say about the so-called wisdom of the crowd, and how do you see a path forward to combating this kind of, of fragmentation? Okay, so the idea of wisdom of crowds comes from a French theorist named Condorcet, who did a little arithmetic and said, if you have a group of people um, and the average member is more likely to be right than wrong, then the likelihood that the majority will be right grows to 100% as the group gets bigger. And he proved it by math. So that's the source of the idea that uh, if you have a group and each person is more likely to be right than wrong, then the likelihood the majority gets it right grows to 100% as it gets bigger. And that helps explain why that old uh, TV show had um, factual questions and you could ask what most people think. And what most people think was usually a better strategy than asking for your lifeline, because what most people think, they, they tended to get it right. Also, we should just add there that one thing that explains this is that People, people will be making errors, but their errors will be falling on all sides of the target. So it's like, it's like asking a thousand people to try to hit a target with an arrow, and you have a, so you have a thousand arrows flying at this target, and the, the, they'll be erring on all sides of the target, but you know, they'll be grouped you know, very close to the bullseye, provided they can shoot arrows at all. Uh, and, this, and that's why if you ask a thousand people to you know, estimate the weight of a cow, say, 
you know, you'll get something very close to the, to the weight of a cow. Completely. So I think these are two related but different mechanisms. One is the Condorcet and the other, Scott Page has done the kind of uh, arithmetic of, which is around the lines you're describing. And they're both help explain why uh, crowd wisdom will exist. But both of them have uh, uh, a potentially erroneous assumption, which is if the error isn't random, so if you have a bunch of people who tend to think, let's say the average cow weighs 7,000 pounds or 150 pounds, then the error is going to be systematically biased toward uh, cow weight error. Or if you have a group of people and the average members likely to more likely to be wrong than right, then it'll get all screwed up. And uh, there's actual demonstrations that the wisdom of crowds is not going to work when people are influencing each other rather than making independent judgments. So if you have someone who says, uh, you know, I know that if you increase the minimum wage to $25 an hour, only good things are going to happen, and that person's credible, let's say, within the group, then the group is going to get all screwed up, and it'll be worse than if you ask them independently because they wouldn't be influenced by that uh, person who I think is making a mistake, and let's just suppose is. So the wisdom of crowds is a great idea. It has uh, two mechanisms behind it. We've just discussed both of them. But if you have people who are sorting themselves into different groups of like-minded types, they can be big groups, and they're not both going to be right. So you're going to have two crowds where one is in Boulder and one is in Colorado Springs, and they can both be you know, very confident and overwhelmingly think something. But it's not working out so well. So we're discussing kind of the current challenges for, uh, let's say, the American Republic that are posed by uh, uh, the daily me and the capacity to self-sort. And now you're asking what can be done about it. Well, there's some good news that wouldn't require anything other than just keep it up, which is that a lot of Americans, the data show, are really just curious and they want to find out what's true. So a lot of Americans on issues, you know, like uh, uh, how dangerous is North Korea or um, minimum wage even, which is a little bit politically fraught, but a lot of people are just, you know, what, what, what would happen if we increased it or decreased it? Or how should we handle air pollution problems? I'm putting climate change to one side because that's more fraught. How should we handle the problem? 40,000 Americans died in the, on the highways in, in 2016. What do we do about that? A lot of Americans are just curious and they want to figure out what's a good solution. And for them, the kinds of uh, daily me problems uh, are modest or not real. And a lot of people are using the kind of uh, massive number of information sources now just to find out a lot of stuff. And they're not turning into the, let's say, the group polarization machines we're describing. So that's one bit of good news. Another bit of good news is that if people don't have a strong conviction to begin with, you know, they might on climate change have a really strong conviction, or they might have something that's on the headlines have a strong conviction. But if it's an issue involving, you know, should we have a big infrastructure spending program in the United States, a lot of people don't particularly have a big conviction about that. And there, if they believe something that's not true and it's corrected, the correction does stick. So the backfiring correction phenomenon you describe, it's real and it's important, 
but it depends on people having a strong, I think, emotional commitment. Uh, um, and most issues, Americans don't have that strong an emotional commitment. They might think, I think the Republicans are usually right, the Democrats are usually right, or they're both usually wrong, but it's not like I'm really invested in my beliefs. So that's more good news. In terms of the challenges we're facing, uh, I think the solution goes back to choice architecture. And uh, people are working, I think, very productively on this, actually relatively recently. So there's a, an app you can get called Read Across the Aisle, and I have it on my phone. And you can get uh, sources with different perspectives. And if you are reading you know, a lot of blue sources or a lot of red sources, it's going to tell you. And it, it both supplies an architecture with lots of stuff in it. And it also has a little kind of nudge if you start uh, entering a polarization machine. You know, did you know you're reading only blue things? So that's cool. There are also newspapers now, um, national newspapers, that are working pretty hard, I think, in view of the problems the country's been experiencing, to try to provide diverse perspectives on problems. They have features that say, read what different people are saying on issues. And that's, uh, uh, that's helpful. Um, Facebook itself has been working on its newsfeed and other features of the platform uh, to try to counteract what in 2016 Facebook seemed to celebrate, which was something like the Daily Me. It's not doing anything particularly aggressive and it's certainly not playing favorites, but meaning it's not saying we like the Democrats or we like the Republicans, but it's trying to provide people with some. Uh, broader perspective, let's say, than an algorithm that was just focused on tracking their recent choices would provide. And that, that can be helpful. Also for each of us, and I know this has uh, influenced me, you know, since, since I started working on the book, we can be very self-conscious if our information diet, so to speak, is narrowing us or is just making us smile all the time. If that's happening, uh, chances are we're not learning as much as we should. Sunstein's book, entitled Hashtag Republic, Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media, is the one you'll want to pick up for his practical and legal proposals to make the internet friendlier to democratic deliberation. With that reminder that the internet need not be completely shunned or burned to the ground, we're going to hear from Zeynep Tufekshi, who's an author and journalist. She makes a claim that social media has so drastically altered political action that we can't really judge pre- and post-social media movements by the same criteria. When she spoke with Sam, she'd just written a book entitled Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Networked Protest. In some ways, the book was her effort to help social movements understand the new landscape and battlefield to more effectively push back against authoritarian governments. She was inspired, along with much of the world, by the early promise of the Arab Spring in Tunisia, as it spread its anti-authoritarian message to Libya, Yemen, Syria, Bahrain, and successfully ousted a dictatorship in Egypt. But she was equally frustrated and dismayed by its wayward momentum and stalled progress. Tufekshi hails from Turkey. It's important to note how differently the dangers and opportunities of social media manifest themselves on a psychological and political level as we span the globe. Because, of course, social media is a global phenomenon, and the lessons and tactics that prove to be effective, healthy, and necessary 
can be learned and shared by democratically-minded civilians and authoritarian regimes alike. Here is Tufekshi speaking with Sam from episode 78, Persuasion and Control. The first blush of enthusiasm for the internet connecting us all as an unambiguous good, that has faded. And now we're discovering that as this technology connects people and empowers us, it's also fragmenting us in ways that are fairly difficult to correct for. And it's creating new levers of influence that could lead to more authoritarian control and and perverse forms of persuasion. And uh, you told me in the setup to this that you were worried about something you've called surveillance capitalism. How do you think about that? What What is surveillance capitalism? So here's what I think about this. We have this um, scary convergence of a couple of events. Uh, one of them is the business model on the internet for the sort of platforms that most of us use, like the Facebooks and Twitters of the world, um, it's capturing our attention and persuading us to, at the moment, click on ads. So there's an enormous amount of brain power going into how to make us buy 0.003 more shoes per person on average. Um, you have this whole infrastructure that is collecting our data, that is doing you know hundreds of thousands of dynamic tests on the platform just to persuade us to act in a particular way uh, for commercial reasons, right? To make us purchase things. And this is happening in uh, increasingly through technologies um, that are like machine learning, which is a form of uh, computer programming that is different than the past in that we don't program it anymore. We feed the machines a lot of data and they create these large matrices and calculate certain things. And just like the brain, that we can't really see what a person is thinking if we slice their brain. With machine learning, you don't really see exactly what's going on. It just spews out classifications. It says, do this, do that, do this, do that. It's probabilistic, but it works pretty strikingly uh, well for the things that we're using it for. But it needs data to work which means um, that we have a business model that is set both to figure out how to exactly push our buttons and also to um, use an enormous amount of data that is surveilled from us symmetrically. You don't get to see what they have. And this enormous amount of data uh, can also be used to deduce things about us that we haven't disclosed, right? It's not just invading our privacy directly. When you have that much data, you can use computational inference to figure out who you think is the troublemaker, who's depressed, uh, who might be on a manic swing in a you know manic depressive cycle. You can figure all these things out even if people don't disclose them or even know them, right? Um, so this is kind of where things are at, this convergence. And the thing I fear is that this is a perfect setup for authoritarians because it allows them to survey the population and to nudge them and shape the opinions using this amount of information that's asymmetric that can figure things out and using machine learning at scale. That means you're like individually experimented on, figured out how to exactly scare you, how to fear monger, how to, uh, when you're vulnerable uh, and what you're vulnerable for. 
And then this will come into politics as well. And there's nothing wrong with persuasion as a form of politics, but it's not happening openly, right? It's happening person by person. It's happening in the dark. Uh, you don't see what other people are seeing. You don't see what is being uh, targeted at you. And think of China, right, with uh, hundreds of millions of people online. And it's not like they censor everything. They censor a few things, but we know from research they usually don't censor government criticism. I feel like it might have even made them more stable because an authoritarian's blind spot is not knowing what people are up to. And this is perfect for knowing exactly what people are up to and individually pushing their buttons. So I find this really ironic that the Silicon Valley business model and the Silicon Valley work, workforce, which is uniquely um, liberal or progressive or libertarian in general, pro-science, empirically oriented, you know, they're geeky in many ways. And I say it as a positive, I find that's my tribe too. We may well be building the infrastructure of authoritarianism. And I think they're under this impression that they'll never lose control of these tools, that they built them and they won't let them be used for evil, so to speak. And I look at history and that's never how it works. Um, you build the infrastructure, it gets taken over by the people with money, with power, with uh, authority. So that's kind of what I've started really worrying about. Uh, my first book was about social moon, social change, and digital tech and the complexities there. I'm now thinking, let's look at this from the point of view of power, the powerful, not the challengers. You know, we spent a lot of time thinking about digital media and digital technology and challengers. Really need to start thinking about digital technology and the powerful and how they're converging historically. Let's take parts of this problem. That's all fascinating. And, and I've been thinking a lot about the way in which digital media is co-opting our attention and causing us to spend our lives in ways that we will later regret. But I haven't really thought as much about the authoritarian misuse of this. I mean, obviously, the, the, there's a lot in the news and a lot of talk about fake news and the, the Russian meddling in our election, and, and we should probably get to that. So there, there's been obvious political issues here. But what's your view on social media in particular? I mean, I notice you use Twitter with a fair degree of enthusiasm. I see you have 74,000 tweets. I do. Uh, it's I saw some my research area, so it's kind of, um, it's a special thing that I'm usually watching things on Twitter too, so I have this dual thing. Uh, I may be keeping an eye on part of my research project. I think I would use it less if it weren't part of my research. In fact, I don't do Facebook research as much, and I'm on Facebook a lot less, uh, partly because it's a medium designed to capture your attention. Right. And it's a medium like every incentive there is to try to capture your attention. And there are times when I'm fine with that. But how do you keep autonomy and agency in an architecture that's designed to get you to do something that maybe you don't want to do if you ask me in the morning? Right. I might be wanting to do it then. But if you ask me in the morning, is this how much of my day I want to spend? So I try to sort of judge that. And outside of my own research and my job researching this stuff, I try to be sort of more mindful of when am I not going to be on this? And when am I going, how am I going to relate to these technologies that I know are designed to 
grab me. Uh, one of the things I've started trying to do is not use services if there's an alternative that um, I don't pay for. I feel like I want to be the consumer. I want to be the one they're catering to rather than being the person whose attention they want to grab so they can sell to people trying to manipulate me into buying 0.003 more shoes. Um, so that's kind of, it, it, it's part, and the problem is, of course, it's part of life. I, I work with uh, refugees uh, and I do, you know, I try to sort of, the unluckiest people, right? I try to sort of see if I can be of some help. And I couldn't do that work if I weren't on Facebook because that's where the groups are and that's where the organization goes on a lot of times. So, I, you know, to be in the civic world today, you use these platforms because that's where billions of people are. On the other hand, they're not designed with the kind of goals I have in mind when I'm engaging the world. And it's this huge challenge. It's this huge tension. And it feeds into what I just said, which is that the people in power are increasingly looking at this world and saying, what can we do with this? How can we use it to consolidate power? This final conversation is with the author and journalist Nina Schick, who had just published a book entitled Deepfakes, The Coming Infopocalypse. In our compilation on AI, there's a plea from the author Max Tegmark that we must adopt a new safety protocol, one that's different from what we've been familiar with. We're somewhat used to letting new innovations experiment on their own until their dangers and downsides become apparent and too painful. And only then do we react and adjust retroactively. He uses the example of designing a car and then later realizing it needed seatbelts. In that compilation, he stresses that we don't want to take that approach when it comes to technologies that potentially pose an existential threat, like artificial superintelligence or nuclear weapons. Playing catch-up with the dangers and damage that those technologies can deliver may be suicidal. When it comes to the threats of social media to democracies, or even our own psychological health, the same plea may be relevant. Playing catch-up to the exploitability of the system may be too slow, too legislatively clunky, and always a labored step behind the aggressive and agile forces that continually discover new vulnerabilities. Deepfake technology presents this type of dilemma as it raises the possibility of destroying access to a shared truth. A deepfake is a piece of synthetic media, a convincing video or piece of audio of someone doing or saying something they haven't actually done or said. This can be a video of someone delivering a speech with words they never uttered, appearing at a crime scene they were nowhere near, or cast in a movie without their knowledge. If you're thinking that the answer to this challenge will be to consistently stay ahead in a race between the ability to make convincing deepfakes and the ability to detect and zap them, there may be a major complication due to the technological process of creating deepfakes in the first place. The most current and most successful programming method uses what are called GANs, or Generative Adversarial Networks. This won't be a comprehensive lesson, but they work something like this. Imagine you employ an art counterfeiter. This guy is pretty talented at making paintings in the style of famous artists, but he's not perfect. You set him up in one room of your house, and you call him the generator. Then you also employ a police officer who's trained at detecting counterfeit pieces of art. 
He inspects them closely and determines which ones come from the real master painters and which ones are faked by thieves. You call him the discriminator. You also have a room full of some real, authentic masterpieces that you only show to the discriminator so he can learn the techniques and styles of Van Gogh, Picasso, and whoever else you like. Then you start the process. Your counterfeiter is going to start making a bunch of fakes. Now you have the choice to either bring one of his fakes over to the discriminator to inspect, or you can bring one of the real masterpieces that he has not yet seen. The discriminator will try to determine each piece presented to him. He can say fake or real. If he's right, meaning that he can tell when he's looking at something real versus something that's counterfeit, then you go back to the counterfeiter and break the bad news to him. You ask him to try something else to improve his technique. You keep playing this game over and over again until your discriminator is wrong, meaning he thinks that a fake piece of art is the real deal. And now here's the part that's important. You tell the discriminator that he's wrong and you instruct him to improve his detection process. He adjusts something about his method to better detect the fakes until he starts getting them all correct again. This little internal competitive arms race starts to accelerate until you're generating an impressive collection of counterfeit pieces of art. This technical process inherently creates an algorithm that can't even tell its own fakes. And it presents a paradox of a third-party agency, like a social network administrator algorithm, not being able to easily identify the fakes themselves. The importance of keeping certain powerful detection algorithms secret starts to sound just like familiar traditional warfare, where it's paramount to keep technical knowledge of weapon building away from your enemies. This whole deep fake thing may seem like science fiction and a long way off, but about 20% of the audio of my voice used in the last two minutes was synthetically produced. I never actually spoke those exact words, and we'd be surprised if you could tell which words were synthetic and which were authentic. There are also popular websites like thispersondoesnotexist.com, where you can see the alarming success of a GAN algorithm on display. So let's let Nina Schick lay out a bit of her worries about deepfakes, the merging of journalism and social media, and the open nature of democracy in general. This is from episode 220, The Information Apocalypse. We have such a colossal mess to clean up in our society now with, with how our information ecosystem has been polluted and deranged and self-inflicted wounds. I mean, it's really, it's, it's amazing to see how much of this is our own doing. And we'll talk about bad actors and people who are consciously using our technology against us to really destroy the possibility of, of living in an open society. But so much of this is a matter of our entertaining ourselves into a kind of collective madness and what seems like it could be a, you know, a coming social collapse. I realize that if you're not in touch with these trends, you know, if anyone in the audience who isn't, this kind of language coming from me or anyone else can sound hyperbolic, but we're really going over some kind of precipice here with respect to our ability to understand what's going on in the world and to converge on, on a common picture of, of a shared reality, because we're in the midst of an information war, and it's being waged against democratic societies by adversaries like Russia and China, but it's also a civil war 
that's being waged by factions within our society, and there, there are various political cults. All of this is happening on the back of and, and facilitating an utter collapse of trust in institutions and a global decline in democracy. And again, we've built the, the very tools of our derangement ourselves, and in particular, I'm talking about social media here. Yeah, so your book goes into this, and it's organized around this, this new piece of technology that we call Deep Fakes, and the book is Deep Fakes, the coming infocalypse, which um, that's not your coinage. It, it, on the page, it's, it's very easy to parse. When you say it, it's hard to understand what's being said there, but it's really, you're talking about an information apocalypse. Just remind people what deep fakes are and suggest what's at stake here in terms of, of how difficult it could be to make sense of our world in the presence of this technology. Yes, absolutely. So a deep fake is a type of synthetic media. And what synthetic media essentially is, is any type of media. It can be an image, it can be a video, it can be a text that is generated by AI. And this ability of AI to generate fake or synthetic media is really, really nascent. We're only at the very, very beginning of the th synthetic media revolution. Um, it was only probably in about the last four or five years that this has been possible. And for the last two years that we've been seeing how the real world applications of this have been leaching out from beyond the AI research community. So the first thing to say about synthetic media is that it is completely going to transform how we perceive the world. Because in future, all media is going to be synthetic because it means that anybody can create content to a degree of fidelity that is only possible for Hollywood studios right now, right? And they can do this for little to no cost using apps or software, various interfaces, which will make it so accessible to, to anyone. And the reason why this is so interesting, another reason why synthetic media is so interesting is until now, the best kind of computer effects, CGI, you still can't quite get humans right. So when you use CGI to do effects where you're trying to create robotic humans, it still doesn't look right. It's called, you know, uncanny valley. But it turns out that AI, when you train your machine learning systems with enough data, they're really, really good at generating fake humans or synthetic humans, both in images. I mean, and when it comes to generating fake human faces, so images, still images, it's already perfected that. And if you want to kind of test that, you can go and look at thispersondoesnotexist.com. Every time you refresh the page, you'll see a new human face that to the human eye, to you or, or me, Sam, we'll look at that and we'll think that's an authentic human, whereas that is just something that's generated by AI, that human literally doesn't exist. And also now increasingly in other types of media like audio and film. So I could take essentially a clip of a recording with you, Sam, and I could use that to train my machine learning system. And then I can synthesize your voice. So I can literally hijack your biometrics. I can take your voice, synthesize it, get my AI kind of machine learning system to recreate that. I can do the same with your digital likeness. Obviously, this is going to have tremendous commercial applications. Entire industries are going to be transformed. For example, corporate communications, advertising, the future of all movies, video games. But 
this is also the most potent form of mis- and disinformation, which you're democratizing for almost anyone in the world at a time when our information ecosystem has already become increasingly dangerous and corrupt. So the first thing I'd say about synthetic media is it is actually just heralding this tremendous revolution in the way that we communicate. The second thing I'd say is that it's coming at a time when we've had lots of changes in our information ecosystem over the past 30 years. So, you know, that society hasn't been able to keep up with from the internet to social media to smartphones. And this is just the next step in that. And then the final thing, this is where I come to deep fakes, is that this field is still so nascent and emerging that the taxonomy around it is completely undecided yet. Mm. And as I already kind of pointed out or touched upon, there will be legitimate use cases for synthetic media. And this is one of the reason, reasons why this cat is out of the bag. There's no way we're putting it back in because there's so much investment in the kind of commercial use cases ever since. I think there's almost 200 companies now that are working exclusively on generating synthetic media. So we mm. have to distinguish between the legitimate use cases of synthetic media and how we draw the line. So I very broad brush in my book say that the use and intent behind synthetic media really matters in how we define it. So I refer to deep fake as when a piece of synthetic media is used as a piece of mis or disinformation. And, you know, there is so much more that you could delve into there with regards to the kind of the ethical implications and the taxonomy. But broadly speaking, that's how I define it. And that's my definition between synthetic media and deep fakes. Mm. Well, so I mean, as you point out, all of this would be good, clean fun if it weren't for the fact that we know there are people intent upon spreading misinformation and disinformation and doing it with a truly sinister political purpose. I mean, not, not just for amusement, although that can be harmful enough. It, it's something that state actors and people internal to, to various states are going to leverage to further divide society from itself and increase political polarization. But it would, it's amazing that it is so promising in the fun department that we can't possibly even contemplate putting this cat back in the bag. I mean, it's just, that's the problem we're, we're seeing on all fronts. I mean, it, it, so it is with social media, so mm -hmm. it is with the, the ad revenue model that is selecting for so many of, of its harmful effects. I mean, we just can't break the spell wherein people want the cheapest, most fun media, and they want it endlessly. And yet the, the harms that are accruing are so large that it's, uh, it's amazing the, just to see that there's just no, there's no handhold here whereby we can resist our slide toward the precipice. Just to underscore how quickly this technology is developing, in your book, you point out what happened with the once uh, uh, Martin Scorsese released his film, The Irishman, which had this exceedingly expensive and laborious process of trying to de-age its principal actors, you know, Robert De Niro and, and Joe Pesci. And that was met with something like um, derision for the, the imperfection of, of what was achieved there. Again, a great cost. And then very, very quickly, Someone on YouTube, using free software, did a, a, a nearly perfect de-aging of the same film. It's just amazing what, what's happening here. And 
again, these tools are going to be free, right? I mean, they're already free, and, and ultimately, the best tools will be free. Absolutely. So you already have various kind of software platforms online. So the barriers to entry have come down tremendously. Right now, if you wanted to make a convincing deepfake a video, you would still need to have some knowledge, some knowledge of machine learning, but you wouldn't have to be an AI expert by any means. But already now we have apps that allow people to do certain things like swap their faces into scenes. For example, Reface. I don't know if you've come across that app. I don't know how old your children are, but if you have a, a teenager, you've probably come across it. You can basically put your own face into a popular scene from a film like Titanic or something. This is using the power of synthetic media. But experts who I speak to on the generation side, because it's so hugely exciting to people who are generating synthetic media, think that by the end of the decade, any YouTuber, any teenager will have the ability to create special effects in film that are better than anything a Hollywood studio can do now. And that's really why I put that anecdote about the Irishman into the book, because it just demonstrates the power of synthetic media. I mean, Scorsese was working on this project from 2015. He filmed with a special three-rig camera. He had this best special effects artist, post-production work, multi-million dollar budget, and still the effect at the end wasn't that convincing. It didn't look quite right. And now one YouTuber, free software, takes a clip from Scorsese's film in 2020. So Scorsese's film came out in 2019. This year, he can already create something that's far more, when you look at it, looks far more realistic than what Scorsese did. This is just in the realm of video. As I already mentioned, with images, it can already do it perfectly. There is also the case of audio. There is another YouTuber, for example, who, um, because a lot of the kind of early pieces of synthetic media have sprung up on YouTube, there is a, a YouTuber called Vocal Synthesis who uses an open-sourced AI model to train, trained on celebrities' voices. So he can, something that he's done that's gotten many, many views on YouTube is he's literally taken audio clips of dead presidents and then made them rap NWA's Fuck the Police, right? Ronald Reagan, mm. FDR. He, very interesting, this is a, a, an indicator of how complex these challenges are going to be to navigate in future. Because another thing that he did was he took Jay-Z's voice and made him rap, recite Shakespeare's To Be or Not To Be. And interestingly, Jay-Z's record label filed a copyright infringement claim against him and made him kind of take it down. But this is really just a forebear of the kind of battles we're going to see when any anonymous user this is, can take your likeness, can take your biometrics and make you say or do things that you never did. And of course, this is disastrous to any liberal democratic model, because in a world where anything can be faked, everyone becomes a target. But even more than that, if anything can be faked, including evidence that we today see as an extension of our own reality, and I say evidence in quotation marks, video, film, audio, then everything can also be denied. So the very basis of what is reality starts to become corroded. Of course, reality itself remains. It's just that our perception of reality starts to become increasingly clouded. 
We've covered a lot of ground in this compilation, and not much of it is very comforting. The challenges for societies and democratic norms to survive social media and the earthquake in the information landscape are immense. There are also the personal challenges of resisting the addictive nature of social media platforms to co-opt our attention. As we mentioned in the introduction, Sam himself has struggled with this at times, and in one particular episode of Making Sense, he confessed to souring a family vacation by allowing himself to be pulled into a Twitter drama vortex with some of his critics. That personal failure urged him to rethink and reassess his relationship with the platforms, which seemed to be able to get the best of all of us. But as we also mentioned in the open, this compilation ought not invalidate the bright spots of social media. Beyond being an impressive source of real-time information and news in potentially urgent situations, and being a wonderful engine to reconnect with distant friends and loved ones, it can be a path to have one's echo chamber cracked and dismantled. In fact, this kind of process happened to me, Megan Phelps Roper. My path towards de-radicalization began on social media, where I was engaged in debates with people who challenged my destructive beliefs. I even ended up marrying one of my interlocutors on Twitter, so I'm quick to express enormous gratitude to the platform and can attest to its profound possibilities for positive transformation. But we'll save the rest of that story for our compilation on belief and unbelief. Still, stories like that ought to help us take seriously the dangers and dark sides, which plenty of the clips included here have highlighted. These are all serious concerns. The advertising model that feeds off of the data vacuum of social media, the amplification of anonymous bullying and extremism, the addictive nature of the slot machine effects of the interface, the exploitation of the openness of democratic systems by authoritarians, and technologies like deepfakes that threaten to make matters worse. And none of them have easy solutions. As the clip with Jack Dorsey should illustrate, many of the moral and political dilemmas presented by the complications of social media are the same ones that human societies wrestled over politically for thousands of years. How free should speech be? Where should advertising be regulated? What information should be withheld from the public sphere? How should we determine what speech is hate speech or an incitement to violence? How much tolerance should we have for offending and annoying behavior? Who gets to make these decisions? All of these questions are grounds for fierce debate and deliberation. It seems that an ethos of being charitable to everyone grappling with the difficult and complex dilemmas that social media has unleashed would be helpful. Unfortunately, being charitable isn't always a trait that social media maximizes. So make sure you subscribe, like, and share this episode, and retweet. Just kidding. We hope you enjoyed it. Here is suggested reading listening, and watching on the subject of social media. The episodes of Making Sense featured in this compilation were episodes 218, 136, 148, 137, 101, 78, and 210. If you want to hear Sam discuss his ruined family vacation, that's from episode 122, which he called Extreme Housekeeping Edition. As always, we recommend listening to the full episodes as they cover much more ground than was included here. 
Tristan Harris leads an organization called the Center for Humane Technology, which has excellent resources for parents, policymakers, educators, and more. Jaron Lanier has written several books on this topic. The most relevant, of course, is 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. But also relevant are Who Owns the Future? and You Are Not a Gadget. He also mentioned a piece in the Harvard Business Review suggesting different economic models for social media and the internet. Lanier co-wrote that piece with Glenn Weil in 2018. It's called A Blueprint for a Better Digital Society. John Haidt co-wrote a book with Greg Lukianoff called The Coddling of the American Mind, which spent time on this subject. And Haidt has delivered plenty of recorded talks on the coercive aspects of social media. We also recommend a debate he participated in with the Soho Forum, where he argued in favor of regulating social media platforms to reduce the harm to Americans. As we mentioned, Cass Sunstein is an uncannily productive author. We could recommend at least five of his books that would be relevant to this topic, but we'll endorse his most recent one here, which was entitled Liars, Falsehoods and Free Speech in an Age of Deception. Zainab Tufekshi's book Twitter and Tear Gas is excellent, and we also recommend keeping up with her opinion pieces for the New York Times, which have revisited some of the issues from the book. Nina Schick's Deepfakes is as important as it is frightening. There are plenty of excellent books that aren't mentioned or included in this compilation that are worth recommending here as well. Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism is the most comprehensive examination of the economic environment where social media thrives. Nicholas Cardaris wrote a book entitled Glow Kids with the bold subtitle, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids and How to Break the Trance. Sherry Turkle's book, Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other is also a highly recommended somber observation. In the documentary space, we very highly recommend The Social Dilemma, which was heavily influenced by the work of Tristan Harris. There's also an eye-opening and disturbing documentary out of Germany called The Cleaners, which investigates Facebook's practice of outsourcing its censorship work to Asia. PBS's Frontline has done a few episodes on this subject, such as Generation Like, but there are two older episodes which look more at advertising that we recommend to pair with this compilation. One was from 2004, entitled The Persuaders. The other is called The Merchants of Cool from 2001. There's a deluge of narrative film which is looking at this topic. We recommend one called Eighth Grade, which focuses on a teenage girl growing up online. There's a 2021 Iranian film entitled A Hero, which is excellent and follows a family drama which plays out online without ever directly showing the screen. An effective framing which questions if the offline world is subservient to the online one. We also love the movie WALL-E. It portrays an unsettlingly familiar dystopia that shows a world of automatic, immediate dopamine hits, dragging humans into a steady, numbing malaise. The presence of screen and social media addiction are obvious throughout. The television series Black Mirror is one we frequently recommend in these compilations. In season five, there's an episode entitled Smithereens, which is a must-watch on the topic of moral responsibility for creating addictive technologies. This episode was edited, compiled, and written by Jay Shapiro and read by me, Megan Phelps Roper.